live in Nashville, Tennessee, and uh, Janie and I uh, serve there at Emmanuel Church in Nashville. We have four children and 13 grandchildren. Wonderful. And um, some of your children are in the UK, is that right? Yes, our eldest, Eric, uh, teaches Old Testament at Oak Hill Theological College in London. Excellent. And you get a chance to see him? Yes, we're overjoyed. Thank Excellent. you. Excellent. Yeah. Well, I'm going to pray for Ray as he brings God's, God's word to us. Father, I just thank you for Ray. Um, I thank you that he is your child. Fill him with your Holy Spirit as he brings your word to us this morning. I pray for all of us that we would listen well. Above all, Father, I pray that everything that we say, everything that we do, will bring glory to your name and will be for the good of everyone here. In Jesus' name, amen. And thank you, brother. Good morning, and I thank Pastor Devinish for the privilege of serving you today in the gospel. And I bring you greetings from Emmanuel Church in Nashville. If you are ever in Nashville on a Sunday morning, we would be overjoyed to have y'all come <laughs> worship with us. So please do. Thank you. Let's open our Bibles now to Psalm 23. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is God's word. The greatest thing about any gathering of Christians anywhere at any time in history is not its organization. That matters, but the world can be well organized. The greatest thing about any collection of Christians anywhere at any time is not even its doctrine. That really matters too. But the world can unite around ideas. What the world cannot do is gather people together in a spirit of faith, expectancy, confidence, and joy about who Jesus is for us. And it is that 
spirit of faith that makes any gathering of Christians compelling. The greatest thing about us is an intangible but powerful tone of amazement that we belong to Him, we are forgiven by Him, we are led by Him, we are near to Him, we are being cared for by Him step by step. And Psalm 23 breathes with that spirit and sense of the glory of Christ to us. Now this powerful awareness, of course, is throughout the Psalms. Is there sadness in the Psalms? Yes. But what makes gospel sadness and gospel lament and grief different is we bring it to Jesus. Is there happiness in the Psalms? Yes. But what makes gospel happiness different is we find it and we find it afresh in Jesus. His glory in our hearts makes us prophetic. We don't need power. We don't need prestige. We don't need money. It is the sense of Jesus and his nearness and his care by which we prevail. And that faith, that confidence, that solidity, that sense of reality with the living God, that God-given certainty, non-delusional, God-given certainty, anchored in the gospel, that is what we all receive here as we read the Psalms, and especially Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is very personal, isn't it? And that's why it's popular. Who of us doesn't love the gentle intimacy of Psalm 23? In, in New Testament faith community, the powerful dynamics of gospel culture, the one another's of the New Testament are very wonderful, but there is no community in Psalm 23. The word we appears nowhere here. The singular pronoun I, me, my is in every verse 16 times in just six verses. It's the spirit of the New Testament, for example, where Paul says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And the individual focus of this psalm is not selfish, it is not narcissistic, it is wonderful, here's why. That moment is coming when they will wheel you into the operating room at the hospital and you will be alone. The doctors will be there, the nurses will be there, but your family and your friends will not be able to go in there with you. You will face it alone. You will need Jesus personally. And that dramatic moment will only make clear how you need Jesus every moment of every day, even in the non-dramatic, non-intense moments of daily life when there's no outward drama. The Christian faith includes glorious community, but at the heart of it all is you saying, the Lord is my shepherd. And the Lord Jesus who said, I am the good shepherd, wants you to be able to say, the Lord is my shepherd. He just is the good shepherd. 
The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus gave himself for the undeserving. Shepherds don't do that. Jesus did. The one who said, the only one who can say, I am the good shepherd, I lay down my life for you, wants you to be able to say, the Lord Jesus is my shepherd. He offers himself, there is no other shepherd out there, we receive him very personally. He says to us, I am the good shepherd, I am your good shepherd. We say back to him, the Lord is my shepherd. Here's the great thing about Psalm 23. I think this is why it's in the Bible that today, right now, every one of us would receive Jesus as our personal Savior all over again. That we would be refreshed and renewed in a very personal and intimate, real and vivid way. I am so cared for. I shall not want. So I want to begin by explaining something about the psalm as a whole, and then I want to show you one thing from each of the three sections in the psalm. Now, the psalm as a whole is often called the shepherd's psalm, but there's more here. In verses 1 through 4, the Lord is my shepherd, and I am his sheep. In verse 5, it changes. In verse 5, the Lord is my host, and I am his guest. And as you know, hospitality was highly valued and respected in this ancient culture. So in verse 5, the scenario, the picture is the Lord in verse 5 is like an Arab sheikh welcoming into his tent a traveler, a fugitive, and sheltering that outsider from his enemies and providing the best meal he has for that fugitive, desperate person. Then in verse 6, it changes again. Now the Lord is God, and I am his worshiper. In verse 6, the metaphors disappear, and we enter into the reality. And in verse 6, the house of the Lord is not his home, it is his temple, where the blood of a lamb brings sinful people safely into the presence of God. So to be the Lord's sheep is good, in a way, humiliating. Who of us has ever aspired to be needy? Okay. But to be the Lord's sheep is good. To be the Lord's guest is better. But to be with him in his presence, where there is no shadow of death, no evil, no enemies, the biblical word for that, is heaven. So let's think it through. First, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, verse 1. In other words, David is saying, because the Lord Jesus takes responsibility for me and is committed to me and stays involved with me 24-7, I am therefore contented. Life is hard, and I'm crazy busy. But thanks to Jesus, my life now is rest in motion. 
I know that whatever happens, I'm going to be okay. He will make sure of it. Therefore, I am not freaking out, but I am settled, calm, thankful. The Lord, for all that he is, is all in with me all the time. The whole Bible gets us there. For example, in the book of Genesis, fear not, Abram. Don't worry about your life. You don't need to wonder how this is going to go. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Then in the Psalms, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. When I was a boy, I went to a dentist in the Los Angeles area and he had Bible verses on the ceiling <laughs> of where the patients were treated and so you know you would be put back in the chair and that was the verse. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. <laughs> then in the Gospels, and from his fullness, Friends, he is so not depleted. He is not running on fumes. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace, clearly implying upon grace, upon grace, upon grace, upon grace. That is not for some spiritual elite. We have all received grace upon grace. The revelation at the end of the Bible. Let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who desires take the water of life without price. The Bible speaks of God's abundance of grace, His surpassing power, the fullness of the blessing of Christ. He is not holding out on you and small thoughts of him, cautious thoughts of him, worried thoughts of him appear nowhere in the Bible. Rather, the Bible warns us Jesus did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Christ is more than enough Savior for you, for me, for all of us together far beyond all that we ask or think. And Psalm 23 is saying to us about this surplus Savior, you can have Him. All of Him. Forever. Here's how my dad, preaching in my home church in 1975, explained the difference this makes, this awareness of Christ. Jesus wants to express his fullness through you. Always begin your thinking and your planning and your deciding from the standpoint of Jesus' fullness in your life. Always begin with the plenty of God. Face life with all you have in Christ. Never face life from the standpoint of all the problems and the needs and all the difficulties. Always begin with your standing in Christ. You have rivers of living water, Christ in you, fullness of grace and truth.
and we know we've lost our way when we stop feeling cared for, we don't feel grateful. One of the first indicators that I'm drifting is the lack of a thankful heart. We feel overlooked. We feel abandoned. We feel God-forsaken. And then we blame him for it. An angry heart treats Jesus as if he doesn't even exist. And that's where we go when our hearts start saying, yes, the Lord is my shepherd, but really, the Lord plus career, the Lord plus money, the Lord plus whatever, fill in the blank, those are my shepherds. That's how we lose our way, not by denying Christ, but by adding to Christ. And it doesn't feel insane. It feels obvious, but it makes us miserable. What we're really saying is that those other things, those are really my shepherd, and Jesus is a garnish on the side. He's religious ornamentation and so forth. But the only real shepherd that exists in all this universe is the risen Jesus. He is the only one who laid down his life for the undeserving. So the way back is to let go of every false hope we're banking on and look to Jesus alone again as all our fullness. We know from Tolkien's Lord of the Rings that one key to life is losing our golden precious. Whatever it is. It makes us weird. It makes us like Gollum. Who wants to be like Gollum? <laughs> when we let it go, we start becoming human again. Then we've got something to give somebody else. We stop being predatory. We relax. We cheer up. We start loving people like they actually matter. Life brightens. What does your heart need to lose today so that your heart can say, you know, the Lord really is my shepherd. <laughs> I really am going to be fine. My, my existence is so not precarious. I am so secure. Jesus has my back. I'm going to be just fine. Now, that's where the psalm is taking us. Let me stop and just explain one thing about, this is kind of clunky and mechanical, but it's worth knowing. How this poetry works and how, David, we bring a pre-understanding to the psalms um, that David didn't bring to the psalms. Um, this first phrase, the Lord is my shepherd, those words are like the heading over all of verses 1 through 4. So they're in bold font, and then the rest of verses 1 through 4 are in regular font and indented, so to speak. Okay? So, and then you're also aware that they wrote poetry. They, what defines their literature as poetry is not rhyming, but parallel lines. They, it was the... A line, B line structure 
that that was how they wrote poetry. We see that throughout the Psalms. So, the Lord is my shepherd, and the rest of verses 1-4 through four describe what it looks like and what it means to have the Lord as my shepherd. And typically, an A line, wherever it is in the Psalms, makes a statement, and then the B line adds another thought. Or maybe it draws a contrast. Or it can do a lot of things. So, for example, from Psalm 1, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, A line. B line, and on his law he meditates day and night. So the B line selects and double clicks on the word delight to describe us, describe for us what that delight looks like. It's this sort of ongoing, endless fascination. The, the mind sort of returning to that topic. Oh, there's a new insight. Isn't that interesting? I never thought of that. Never saw it that way before. That's delight. So A line, B line. Now, sometimes in the Psalms, we even see a C line, which really stands out, which is exactly what it's supposed to do. But here in Psalm 23, then the Lord is my shepherd is a heading for all of verses 1 through 4. Then the A line, and the way the verses are broken down is a little surprising. The A line is, I shall not want. And the B line is, he makes me lie down in green pastures. This is called emblematic parallelism, meaning one line is plain literal truth, I shall not want, and the other line is a metaphorical or figurative description of that literal truth. So literal truth, I shall not want. I'm going to do really well. My life is trending well. Metaphor he makes me lie down in green pastures. That is, he has located me in a lush, well-supplied environment of abundance. My existence, I have a future worth looking forward to. As Paul would say in the New Testament, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places God is so not holding out on us. All right? Then, David does it again. But this time he flips the sequence. This time he starts with a metaphor. A line is, he leads me beside still waters. Then the B line, literal reality is, he restores my soul. Huh. That's actually what's going on here in Psalm 23. So that beeline, he restores my soul, is saying this, in a world of deserts and mirages, in a world of exhaustion and depletion, in a world of disappointment, broken promises, and fraudulence, look where the Lord has brought me. I am in this soul-restoring, soul-replenishing I'm by the, beside the still waters of God's abundant grace with not a ripple on the surface to cause me distress. There is nothing in Christ I need to worry about. There is nothing in him I need to brace myself against. There is nothing at all in him I have to filter out. He said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Here in the midst of the crazy, I have Christ, 
restoring my soul. He's a life-giving, not a life-depleting personality. Here's a, here's a picture of this. This is amazing. I just thought of it this morning. B.B. Warfield taught theology at Princeton and uh, revered the Westminster Shorter Catechism of the Presbyterian Church. And famously, the first question in the catechism is, what is the chief end of man? The answer, of course, is man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's all about the abundant grace of God. Warfield told a true story. I think it happened in the San Francisco earthquake of 1906, though Warfield doesn't actually say it. But two American soldiers were in, he said, a great western city at a time of violent rioting and upheaval. Buildings burning, people shooting off guns, everything's at riots in the streets. Crazy. And this general officer, Warfield said, of the United States Army is walking down the street in the midst of all of this upheaval, and he sees a man coming toward him, another army officer. And this man, he notices the calmness and firmness and settledness of this other man. Very striking in that, in that setting. The other guy walks up to him and taps him on the shoulder right in the middle of all this and says, what is the chief end of man? <laughs> and he replies, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And the other guy said, but I knew you were a shorter catechism boy by your looks. And the other guy said, well, that's just what I was thinking of you. And Warfield said, that is what the great truths of the gospel do. They shape young people to grow up to be brave stalwarts in the midst of insanity. The Lord is my shepherd wherever, all the time whatever I'm facing. Then it says in verse 4, his care never fails, even in the valley of the shadow of death. That's a place of darkness. That's a place of despair. That's a place of loss. It's a place of suffering. That is really scary the valley of the shadow of death. We will all soon die. But with Jesus as our shepherd, we will humble that enemy. We will triumphantly step on that enemy and turn that enemy into our stepping stone into the presence of the Lord. Friends, we want to live well. We want to die well. For example, as D.L. Moody lay dying, he said to his son who was there with him, Earth recedes, heaven opens before me. If this is death, it is sweet. God is calling me. This is my triumph. This is my coronation day. And years before, Moody had said, someday you will read in the newspaper that D.L. Moody is dead. Don't you believe a word of it. At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. J. Gresham Machen, the Presbyterian theologian, as Lehidley dying, saw into heaven. 
God enabled him to see that, and he said to his friend there, Sam, it was glorious. It was glorious. He dictated a telegram to a friend back home. I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. What a great dying thought. Not all I've done for him, what he's done for me. When Frances Havergal, the hymn writer, died, her sister Maria wrote that she looked up steadfastly as if she saw the Lord. For 10 minutes we watched her in that almost invisible meeting with her king and her countenance was so glad as if she were already talking to him. Then she tried to sing. But after one note, he, her voice failed and she passed away. John Newton, former slave trader, as he lay dying, he said, my memory is nearly gone. But I can remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great savior. Now, not all believers die in their beds. Donald Cargill was about to be hung in Edinburgh in 1685 because he stood loyal to Jesus. He said, this is the most joyful day that I ever saw on earth. My joy is now begun, which shall never be interrupted. I am no more terrified at death because of sin than if I had never sinned. For all my sins are freely pardoned and washed thoroughly away by the blood of Jesus Christ. 1851, this is, this is amazing to me. 1851, British missionaries waited all winter long for their supply ship to arrive. They were at the southern tip of South America, not far from Antarctica. Methodist missionaries, the, the ship came too late. They all died of starvation and cold. One of them, Richard Williams, kept writing in his journal. He knew the ship would show up eventually and that his journal would be found. And he wrote, should anything prevent my ever adding to this, let all my beloved ones back home rest assured that I was happy beyond description when I wrote these lines and would not have changed places with anyone living. What a great way to die. F.B. Meyer sent a postcard to a friend on his dying day. He said, I have raced you to heaven. I'm just off. See you there. <laughs> that afternoon, he asked his doctor how long he had to live. The doctor said a few more hours, say, till, till 4 o'clock. Meyer fell asleep. He woke up later. He asked, what time is it, nurse? 6 o'clock. Tut, tut, said Meyer. This will never do. I ought to have gone two hours ago. And then in the late 1960s, my dad received a letter from a young man in our church who was serving as a medic in the army in Vietnam, who wrote, the night we were overrun by some 300 Viet Cong was a night I will never forget. We had some 40 wounded and 20 killed. In this moment of darkness, there was brightness for me and for one of the guys I was treating, for he accepted the Lord in the middle of the battle. Though he left me a few minutes later, I'll never forget the radiance on his face. Being wounded about the chest and legs and arms, the pain had no bearing, for the Lord had come to him and brought him more comfort than any medical man could. 
Jesus Christ died and rose again to walk you through your valley of the shadow of death and resurrection. And you too can say, I fear no evil. For you are with me. That's the Lord as our shepherd, verses 1 through 4. Secondly, the Lord as our host, verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Now the Lord, we are now the guest in the, being cared for, taken in by the Lord as our host. And I wish this weren't true, but it is true. If you love the Lord, you will have enemies. The New Testament in 1 Corinthians is very clear. If you put your trust in Christ and you find in him a wisdom, a genius, a resource, a resilience that just doesn't even exist anywhere else, there are some, especially the cool people, who will think you're stupid. And it doesn't matter how nice you are. Please try to be nice. I will too. It doesn't matter how nice we are. Some people will think we're morons for following Christ. That's just the way it is. But their criticism, their marginalization, their opposition cannot block his support. He always has a way of getting through in the presence of his enemies. Always. For example, I was reminded recently of the story of Corrie ten Boom, the Dutch Christian lady, her family was taking in and sheltering hiding Jewish people during World War II under the Nazi occupation. They were caught, sent to concentration camps. Most of the family died in those concentration camps. The camp where Corey was taken, the guards would not enter her barracks because it was infested with fleas which meant that Corey and the other prisoners there in that barracks were free to study the Bible and pray and comfort one another and stay really alive. The fleas controlled the Nazis. <laughs> the Lord prepared a table for her in the presence of her enemies and she ended up praising God for the fleas. The Bible says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's just standard issue equipment in God's army. We wouldn't want it to be otherwise. We'd, we don't want to be privileged. We don't want to stand aloof. We don't want to be above it all. We want to be down there because that's where Jesus is. And if he is wonderful to you, some people will resent you because he is not wonderful to them they will, you don't mean it this way, but they will perceive your happiness about him as threatening to them. And when they thrust you out, as they will, he will take you in. He will. And what does it matter who your enemy is if your friend is Jesus? He will care for you and for your soul in a Psalm 23, 5 kind of way that is very 
real, but ultimately unexplainable. This can't be accounted for except by miraculous grace. I myself, I've not always felt loved by him. Some years ago, I walked through darkness and I looked at the reality of my life and I thought, hmm, I thought God loved me. Maybe the truth is he hates me. I look at the facts. Eventually, I figured out I was right the first time. God does love me. But I did not leverage my way from that darkness to that assurance. I didn't even theologize my way. I don't know how I got from there to here, except he did not let me go. He took me in. But when I had nothing but need, I had nothing to bring to the table, nothing to offer him. He took me in. It was very personal, but it was not private and it was not exclusive. And so many of us can tell stories of the same nature, of his care. He can do this for you. That's why Psalm 23 is here. This is an alert from him above to you in your need. Maybe you believe this morning, God must hate me. He doesn't. My recommendation is, of all the things that you might do at this point, don't make it worse. Keep looking to him. If you can't persuade yourself that he loves you, that's all right, that doesn't stop him. Just don't turn away. Keep looking at him. You think he despises you. You're wrong. But it's good. you're going to get back into his love more quickly and more painlessly if you just stay there at, and stare into his face, so to speak. He will care for you. He's a good host. That's the Lord as host. Number three, finally, verse six. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now the Lord is God. I am his worshiper. And verse 6 is an Old Testament way of saying, nothing will ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And right now, along the way, his goodness and mercy, not his wrath and judgment, but his goodness and grace and mercy will keep on pursuing you. That's what the verb follow actually means. This following isn't the Lord catching up with you. This following is the Lord chasing you down. The verb translated follow means to pursue, to run after. The Lord is the God who doesn't wait for his worshipers to come to him. He goes out and finds them and he brings them in. And then he brings us back in many times until there is no shadow of death, there is no threat of enemies, there is not even the impulse in our own hearts to wander off. Francis Thompson, in his famous poem, The Hound of Heaven, helped us see God realistically. And Thompson admitted this, I fled him. 
down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. Here's the great thing we love about Jesus as our shepherd, our host, and our God. <laughs> he can outrun us any day of the week. And he will, faithfully. He is why. The Bible says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What we're seeing here together right now is future best friends in heaven forever. We will see one another again. We will have tea together. We will walk in the hills together. We'll swap war stories together, how Jesus got us through. That moment then that eternal moment is the true measure of our lives right now. That is worth waiting for. That is worth anything. You have every right to expect of me, as your brother in Christ, that I will cling to Jesus for dear life until the end. And you know, friends, I have every right to expect that of you that you'll hang on to Jesus for dear life day by day until the end. And we'll meet up in heaven. We'll be with the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, this morning some of us feel deeply settled and assured of your love, we're so grateful. Keep us in your ways. Keep us from sin. Keep us close to you. Others of us, Lord, have drifted. We feel embittered. We feel such grievance toward you. Release us from that sorrow. Bring us back into your presence so faithfully. Lord, we're staking everything on the wonderful promises of Psalm 23, and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.